Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about writing proposals. But before you tune out, <laughs> I trust you it's going to be more interesting than, uh, than just... Uh, than that sounds. <laughs> yeah, more interesting than that sounds. Well, we talked about calling it writing winning proposals and we both went... Bleh. <laughs> Uh, okay, so but before we do that, I would like to remind everyone that we are coming up to episode number 150 and we want you to participate. The way you can do that would be to send in an audio recording of a question that you have for us and uh, we're going to select from the group and uh, hope, you know, hopefully get to your question on the show. So if you'd like to hear your uh, if you like the sound of your own voice and you like to hear it, <laughs> like even we do. if you don't, even if you don't, your question is still important. Yes, yes. If you're if you're terrified of the microphone, I suppose you could email us a, a, just a text version, but we would definitely prefer uh, an MP3 of you asking your question. Um, okay, and that's that's uh, next week, so time is running out. Yeah. All right. Why would we talk about proposals? What could possibly be interesting or unusual about proposals? <laughs> so, well, let's start. What do you, when you were in the, uh, when you had the consulting firm, did you guys write a lot of proposals? I'm curious how many you wrote. Was it um, every day, yeah, every well, week? Well, I had a rule that we had to have a proposal before we started working. And when I say proposal, it might be a work plan. Like if the client had already said, we want you to do this, I still wanted that written document because I wanted that understanding between the two organizations about what was going to get done. And I didn't want things to be, you know, kind of swept under the table. And that's how you get write-offs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say we wrote a fair number. Um, what what would happen, and you know, this is back in the 90s, you know, so I, I, I always hesitate to say whether it still applies now, but we were this little firm of sort of expats from the big firms. So they didn't ask us to propose just to have us propose. The way in a big firm, you know, there's like a beauty contest and you have to ask three and you just never know going in what your odds are. They didn't want to waste our time. They respected that, you know, we were the little guys. We didn't have these big budgets. So there weren't that many proposals that we did that we didn't win. Mm -hmm. You know, I could have made the argument, yeah, I wish we did a lot more. We could have done more <laughs> business. But it was really, it was about the relationship first. And then the proposal was, you know, the uh, in those days, physical manifestation of what it was we were actually going to do for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I thought the proposals were really important. Um, I honestly don't remember how many we did in a week. I mean, because we had some big projects. Like, we had some that would keep a couple people busy for six months. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of off the grid for new projects. And then we had um, a couple people that had some unusual skill sets. And, you know, I would pitch them whenever it made sense in a meeting. And we'd do a lot of proposals for those folks. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm sure we had at least a couple every week. But, you know, it, 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 it ebbed and flowed. Right. Yeah, I had a similar situation in one respect, which is that I, my close rate was really high. You know, by the time mm -hmm. I wrote a proposal, I, I would pretty much get it. You know, I can think of some high-profile ones that I didn't, but uh, but the reason was that I would, you know, I don't particularly enjoy writing proposals, and I wouldn't write them if I didn't think I was going to get it. <laughs> so, right. so it was kind right. of cheating, you know, like, you know, for any leads that came in, it was like, you know, if I would have 
the sales interview with them and I would go through my why conversation questions, if we got to the end of it and I wasn't like, you know, in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get this, you know, like if, if, if I don't completely overprice it, like out of the ballpark, I'm going to land this. So then I would write a proposal. If I get to the end of the, the, the meeting, it was usually a phone call and I was like, you know, I would say this too. I'd be like, I just don't see the business value here. Like, why are you going to give me a million bucks or whatever to come in here and do this thing? Like, if, cause they couldn't give me some desired outcome. They couldn't explain what the transformation was. They, they couldn't mm-hmm. get past the tactics or the activities that they wanted me to undertake on their behalf. You know, like we want you to change this. We want you to change that. We want you to move this over here. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, great. I can do all those things, but why? Like, what's the bigger business context? Cause it's a hundred ways I could do this. And if I do it, you know, if, if I do it in absence of understanding the big picture, I could paint us into a corner with the entire project. So mm-hmm. they would say, oh, okay, well, and they'd back up and I'd be able to go through my why questions. Uh, you know, why this? Why now? Why me? I mean, why not do it yourself? Why not get an intern? Why not hire your cousin Vinny? Why not go to uh, <laughs> Fiverr? Why not, uh, or TopTal or any one of the others? You know, why not put this off for six months? Why, why, what changed? Why is this so urgent all of a sudden? Uh, or isn't it urgent all of a sudden? And hey, why not not do this? What'll happen if we don't do this at all? What if you like, what's the big deal? What's the benefit? Um, is this the right solution to the problem? Tell me about the problem. Maybe there's an easier solution that'd be smaller than what I'm picturing right now, all of these things. And good clients love, love questions like this. Like Mm -hmm. if they're going to be a bad client and they don't really want you involved at the brains level, then I wouldn't write a proposal because like, what would be the, there's just no value in it. But if they were, if they were open to these kinds of questions, then I'd get pretty excited and the, and really all of the hard work of writing the proposals in that sales interview, like all, like if you do a good job in the sales interview, the proposal writes itself. It's just like a template Mm -hmm. that I have that you go through and it's like, you just fill in the blanks with the words that came out of the client's mouth. And the only thing, you know, the thing that, the the thing that you add, the thing that they didn't, um, basically tell you or the thing, you know, we've kind of come to an agreement in the meeting of like what the problem is, what needs to be done, what the value of the transformation is roughly, you know, how Mm -hmm. big a deal it is, why they can't go with someone cheaper, why they need to do it now and can't wait. All of these things they've told me. So I can just put it in the proposal. It's like, here's why we have to do this. Here's why we have to do this now. Here's why you can't cheap out and go with someone else. You have to hire someone expensive like me and here, you know, and just use their language down the list. And then the the weird thing about writing the proposal, the way I do it is that when I had a project proposal, I would value price it, which is, you know, not what most people do. Most people would think like, okay, here are all the things like they'd get all the, the tasks, they get the list of stuff they need, you know, they need done in the meeting. And then they'd write down all the stuff, like a huge scope document. And then they would estimate how many hours they thought it would take. And they say, well, we think it'll be about a hundred thousand dollars, but well, we'll see. <laughs> so they think about the scope first and how much work they need to do. And then they attach a loose price to it and then show it to the client and the client it's left to the client to decide whether or not that price is worth it. Like, is this project worth more to us as a company than the price we have to pay to get it done? So that's the normal way. It's scope first. I scope last. So once I understand the problem and the desired transformation, like um, in the sales meeting, they're going to say, here's a current situation. We want to be in this new situation. So our, our desired future state is, is something else. And we believe that you are someone that can help us get there. So 
if I can do a back of the envelope calculation of how big that that difference is or that um, that transformation is for the company, which you usually can, you know, mm-hmm. you know how big the company is, you know how much their payroll is. You ask questions like, why not just do this manually, hire three admins to do this manually and, you know, things like that. Then you're like, ah, I can ballpark. This is, you know, this is definitely worth $100,000 a year to these people. So then I would scope last. I'd go backwards from the value. So it's like, okay, I, you know, got in the proposal, I would say, oh, well, let's just say it's roughly $100,000 worth of value to them. It's probably worth that much or more. And I can tell a story that, that makes that case that that number's in the ballpark. And I would say, all right, so I'll just reverse engineer three prices from there usually 10%, 22%, and 50%, roughly. And then I'd say, eh, what could I do for $10,000? What could I do for $22,000? What could I do for $50,000 to move the needle that these people want moved? And I'd think about the scope last based on the price that I would get paid to do it. It's almost like it's almost like giving myself a budget to execute the work. And then I'd say, oh, all right, well, what could I do here? Well, for $10,000, I can't build them a whole new system, but I could design it. You know, I could come up with a system architecture, make platform recommendations. Uh, what could I do for $22,000? Oh, maybe I could do that plus three months of oversight with their internal dev team to make sure they don't blow their foot off, you know, things like that. And then $50,000 would be like, oh, I could, you know, I could maybe bring on a contractor or partner with somebody and outsource the the build part and I could oversee it and come up with the design, oversee the build. But it's reverse. You think about scope less. So you don't have to talk about scope in the sales meeting uh, if you're talking to me, <laughs> uh, you will, they'll, the client will usually, you know, it'll come up. Yeah. They'll, yeah. they usually think about it in terms of scope. They're usually the, the transformation, the desired future state, all of the, all of the answers to the why questions are so obvious to them because they've, uh, they might almost be subconscious. They like, just know they need to have their website updated or something. It's like, well, why, what's wrong with it now? How do you know it needs to be updated? And yeah, so, so my process is very backwards. Um, people who first encounter it, have, it, it takes some practice. You have to do three or four of them before you realize like, oh, he's serious. Like he really means don't think about scope up front. And I didn't, I haven't done one of these in a long time because I haven't been consulting, but I teach people this all the time and it still works for sure. <laughs> oh, well, it, it totally works. But the, the thing to keep in mind is that part of the purpose of those proposal meetings is for the client to feel you out, yep. right? They want to know that you're the real deal. So while it's really important to ask questions, because when you ask questions, you're showing your interest, you're showing that you're strategic, assuming you're asking strategic questions, mm-hmm. but they also want to get a feel for what's it like to work with you. Mm-hmm. Does he know what he's talking about? And I'm not talking about like when you have a big meeting, there's always somebody in there going, well, what would you do in this situation? <laughs> it was some highly technical question that's kind of BS when you get right down to it. Right. But mostly part of this, in my mind, whether it's it's a virtual or in-person meeting, is that they want to get a feel for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you said, I think is you said it so fast, I think it's so important, is to use their language. Yeah. In this proposal. And I can't tell you how important that is because every human being wants to feel heard. And when you read a proposal and you go, oh my God, they get it. They get me is really what they're saying, Mm -hmm. but they get it. It's huge. And it's, I've, I've been in situations, especially in a, in a big firm where it almost didn't matter what came after what they loved was the first page of the proposal. 
where we said, here's the situation, here's what you're trying to accomplish, here's what the transformation looks like. Um, And it wasn't a sales job. We didn't even say, this is why we're good for you. We just said, this is how we see the scenario. And then here's, you know, how we see a solution or a set of solutions. Boom. So it's, it's that it's, there's this reflective process that is really important. Yeah, the, I cannot tell you, like, it happens all the time where, because I have students doing this, I, I just started a new session at TPS, and the first week is um, proposals, like how to really do a proposal. And so, so I read, like, I don't know, hundreds of them, you know, so it's like between private coaching and, and the various classes and people just asking for help. And it's such a night and day difference when people stop it's like they it's like they adopt this weird kind of weasel word language or like mm. it's like this passive voice or something and it's like oh i hate the passive voice yeah. active voice in proposals it's like i can't under it's almost like i can't it's like i'm trying to read it through gauze or something i'm like what yeah. is this and if i can't so like even if it's technical or not you know even if it's not technical or, it, you know, these days it's been so long since I've been, I mean, I've been out of tech for a couple of years and it's already like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. There's like, it changes so fast. So I'll read one of these and it might be about, you know, some kind of like wacky machine learning thing. I don't need to understand the technology at all. I shouldn't need to understand the technology at all to understand the proposal. And here, right. this is a good rule of thumb that I suggest to people, especially developers, because they get, they have a tendency to get really engineering like and, and like acronym soup and all this stuff. I'll be like, the person who, like the person who you spoke with, your contact might understand all of this stuff. Like maybe you're talking to the CTO and you're an outside tech consultant and, and you understand all the jargon. That's fine. But they need to be able to, I always say to the to students, I'm like, imagine that, that your contact is going to take that and show it to their spouse or their CFO or the board, someone on the board and be like, does this seem crazy or does this seem right? It needs to be thoroughly 100% clear to like a 10-year-old. Like it just needs to be plain English. Don't jazz it up. Don't use fancy words. I mean, I suppose this is a general, my general um, communication style anyway. But I think it's, it's so refreshing when a client gets one of these that's like just laid out. It's like, oh, yeah. This is our current, yes, this is our current situation. Yes, this is the transformation that we'd like. And yes, this is how we think Bob can contribute to that situation. Geez, I wonder what the, I wonder how, like in what ways can contribute to this? (laughs) And then you have this, like, here's a very clear option one. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Uh, This will benefit you in these ways. The outcomes of this option will be blah. There's risk and assumption in this. And the key success metric for this particular option is this. It's like, You know, if you don't use jargon and just spell it out with like regular business words, like things that business people care about, they're going to care a lot less about like, well, how many tables are going to be in the database and how many hours and what color is the logo going to be and how big is it? And they're not going to care about that stuff. You're, you're, And, And the more, but the more technical you are, the more you will blow them away with that kind of a proposal. Yes. Right. right, because the client doesn't expect when they're dealing with somebody highly specialized, highly technical, they almost don't expect you to speak their language, and it's super powerful when you do. Oh yeah, I mean, imagine that. Imagine, I mean, it probably happens to people in to is there. It probably happens to your listener that you're on the receiving end of stuff like this from time to time, 
and the most recent, the, the best example that comes to mind was when we had squirrels in our garage and I had animal control come out and give us a quote to try and get them out of the garage. And the bulk of the quote was them listing the technical terms of like the kind of wire they were going to use. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, and nowhere in the proposal did it say they'd get rid of the squirrels. Like not nowhere. It was just a list of, of, you know, we think it's going to take this many hours and he's going to climb up on the roof over here and we're going to put a trap back here. It's going to be a, a K-1000 Squirrel Master trap. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like just telling me. I'm asleep already. <laughs> right? And I'm like. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like you want to scream like, are you going to get rid of the squirrels for this mm-hmm. price? Like, I don't, I don't right. care if you wave a magic wand. Get rid of the squirrels. And it's like, oh, okay. Jeez, Yeah. And, and and you don't have to prove to me like how many hours it's going to take and all the time and material stuff on the thing. I don't care. All I care is if you're going to get rid of the squirrels and I'll pay, up, you know, and there's a number in my head that I would pay to do it. If, if you can do that, with like playing a flute and walking down the street and they just follow you into the river, then great. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fine. They value price that one. Right. Right. So anyway. It's super powerful. It's very refreshing. If they're getting any other proposals from people, at least in my space, it's not uncommon to get like a 30 page proposal from a dev shop or an agency. And it's just like full of these like screenshots and drawings. And it takes forever to put together and it takes forever to read. And I guarantee you, they're not going to read most of it. They're going to scan around. They're going to look for price. They're going to go, I can't believe it's that much. And then they're going to go back and try and figure out why it's so much. And they're not going to be able to find a way into it. And they're just going to be like, I don't know. Let me see the next one. I used to ask clients like after we won an assignment, um, how they would read the proposal. And they always said they looked at the, at the first part, basically to make sure their name was spelled right. If they had an unusual (laughs) name and then they would look at the fee page. Yeah. And then they would look at, and this is, you know, what you do in a big firm. Nobody does this so much anymore, but there was a bio section because they wanted to see the background of the people on the team because they, they might have met them, but they didn't really know much about them. So they would go to that page and they'd go, oh, you went to such and such university or, oh, you like pet snakes too, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, so it was, did they spell my name right? What, what's the fee number? <gasps> as you said, and then let me see who's on the team and then they'll go back hopefully and read the whole proposal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I've, I've experienced the same thing and I have a couple of, uh, I guess tricks up my sleeve to use that behavior to my advantage to get them to read the thing. Cause I do mm-hmm. want them to read it. So that's the big right. reason why I keep it really short. It's five pages. I don't think I've ever sent one that was longer than five pages, maybe six. And that's including a cover page. So, you know, the thanks for your time, blah, blah, blah. On the following pages, mm-hmm. you'll find three options. So uh, one of the things is that I've never thought about the name thing, but I, I know you're right. That is definitely true. Oh, I, I, my name gets spelled wrong all the time. Is that right, Michelle? <laughs> Michelle Rolton. Yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah. So, um, so one of the things that uh, I like to do is... Because you know they're going to open it up, they're going to check the spelling, and then they're going to look for dollar signs. Mm -hmm. And I don't do, you know, I don't have big like flashing lights, you know, prices are on page two or nothing like that. Uh, They're kind of buried at the end, honestly, in a bunch of uh, the most, um, the densest section probably is the end, like terms and conditions. Yeah, the fees. Yeah, and in the, but. It's actually interesting. I see I separate fees from terms and conditions. 
I know. I, I that's what you know, most people do. I bury the prices, so they have to really look. So on the but, it, but what I do is I put a price up, not a price, but a dollar sign in the very first on the very first page, not after the cover letter. So in the situation appraisal where I'm saying you are currently here, you'd like to go over there, and my contribution is this. And in in there, in the transformation piece, like where you want to go, mm-hmm. I'll I'll say like you know. Uh, this is just a rough calculation, but if we if A is true and B is true and C is true, then this could represent a you know dollar signs amount of uh, value for the company. And it doesn't need to be top line or bottom line. It could just be an estimate of like, well, you know, you said that this would do the work of five people, and if we're assuming like uh, you know forty five dollars an hour across the course of a year, the savings would be a million dollars. So when they're when they're flipping through and they see a dollar sign, and it says a million dollars. And then they're like, oh, that's, oh, that's not the price. That's what he's saying. The benefit would be to us uh, or an estimate of the benefit or the value. And then they'll be like, well, A and B aren't exactly true, but he's right. It's probably close to that. And then it's like they're anchored high to the value. They're thinking about the value. They're not thinking about how many hours is this going to take? Why is why these prices so high? It shouldn't take that long. How hard could it be? So you start off by, you know, it's a, you know, Robert Cialdini straight out of influence, you know, anchoring high with the price. And it's like, okay, that's like, that seems reasonable or it's in the ballpark. And if you are in the ballpark on that number and they're anchored to it from seeing it initially, when they get to your prices, which I would, you know, are always going to be a fraction of that number and, and, you know, option one will be a small fraction. It's going to be compared to the value instead of the next Mm -hmm. quote on the pile. Right. Yeah, I like that. I think the other thing about this process is that if what you're really trying to do is help your client and build a long-term relationship, which not everybody's trying to do, I understand that. Some of the stuff is we do this and, and you know we take our ponies and we go home. <laughs> um, but I just, I just want to tell this quick story. Um, when I had my firm, um, we were called in by Arthur Anderson and they, the way they explained it to us was that they wanted to get more women to partner faster, right? That was their big goal. And they weren't looking to hire us to do all of that, but there was a piece of this that they wanted our help with because we were an all-female firm. Mm-hmm. And so we sat down with their HR head and she basically said, and I may have the numbers off a little bit, but I think she had a $10,000 budget to do this piece of it. And we sat down and the consultant and I, we were scratching our heads when we left because we're like, oh no, this is not what she's proposing. It's not going to work at all. So we made a strategic decision and we wrote the proposal that was not what the client was expecting. Mm -hmm. I haven't done that very often because we always talk about it in the meeting, but this was really complex and it was about how to get the job done, like the best way to put it together. And we both knew it couldn't be done for $10,000. And, you know, we asked, is there any wiggle room on, on that budget? No, that's the budget. So we wrote a proposal. I think it came in maybe like $35,000. And I told the consultant, write it the way you think it should be done. Price that out for what it's going to cost. And let's let's go from there. Um, What's interesting is when we delivered it to the client, I said right up front, this is not what you're expecting. But this is how you need to do the project. You don't have to hire us. You could do this yourself if you want to. Mm -hmm. But this is what's going to get you to the answer. Not only did they hire us for that, oh, gee, we found the budget, but later (laughs) they bought us. (laughs) 
so I'm just saying there's all kinds of things that can come out of a proposal when you're really listening to what they want and you apply what you know to their yeah. situation. It's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a great story that explains why I tell people the budget doesn't matter. So, you know, a lot of people are like, how do I find out the budget from the client? I'm like, don't find out the budget. It's a made up number that they based on a self-diagnosis. So it, it, it's just probably, it could be right, but it's kind of fanciful. Like they don't know the scope, like they're hiring an expert or they're talking to experts because they don't know what's involved. Exactly. So you can't really, I mean, it'll give you an, if, if somebody says the budget's a hundred dollars or somebody says the budget's a million dollars, that gives you an indication of what the value is ish. Uh, you know, you're, you're in a different ballpark, but you know, usually if somebody blurts out the budget to me, I'll try and keep option one within the budget. And then options two and three are like way over it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And it's, well, and there's sometimes clients get, get taught this or that it's their worldview where they just feel like it's not safe to say a real number. And so they, they lowball on purpose. So somebody will go in and they've got you know, they've got, you know, a $500,000 budget generally. So it's a question of how much they allocate for this project. Mm -hmm. And so they'll tell you a low number. And the newbie tries to hit that number. And mm -hmm. that's the mistake. Yeah. That's here, always the mistake. And here's the thing, too. If they, let's just say they say it's 10, we've got a $10,000 budget and we want you to do this stuff, these activities for 10000 And you're looking at it and you're a newbie and you're like, you're like, oh, uh, I really want this job. I could use the money. That's like, that's a lot of work for that amount of money though. And it's like, it doesn't seem uh, reasonable. The problem isn't that they only have $10,000 to invest in this solving whatever the problem is. The, the problem is that they are defining the scope and the price. Like one of them has to be flexible if there's a, if they're too close to each other. So like yeah. if somebody comes to you and says, um, I need an entire new, you know, website and I've got a hundred bucks. Then, you know, in your head, you're like, well, I can't, you know, I, if I did it for a hundred yeah. bucks, I'd be making like 10 cents an hour. So I'm not going to do happen. that. Right. But if you have a conversation with them and say, okay, you've got a hundred dollars, you want a new website. You're not going to get a new website for a hundred dollars. That's going to do anything for you. What do you want the website to do? And maybe you can come up with uh, some kind of a solution where you're like, oh, well, you know, you, if you learn the circumstances and you see what they're trying to do, you say, well, honestly, I don't think you need a new website. Maybe you should take that hundred dollars and put it into Facebook ads. You know, it's like, you're not getting any traffic. It's not because your website's ugly. It's because no one knows about it. No one's searching for it. Maybe you just need to increase the awareness. That's kind of a bad example. But the point is you can take, like, if you scope last and you don't let the client dictate the scope, it's fine if they dictate the dollars because you can just adjust the scope so that you'd be happy to do it for the price a hundred dollars mm -hmm. is too low to really it's too low to probably yeah, do much of anything not it's even like, enough time to write the proposal no it's like buy my book you know <laughs> if you only have a hundred dollars <laughs> yeah. buy the book yeah. but if you if someone comes to you this is the beauty of value pricing is you never like you're it's always profitable for everybody because if you have if if there's if uh the value is let's just use to use round numbers again a hundred thousand dollars and you have three prices. I'll do this for ten thousand. I'll do that for twenty-two thousand. I'll do the other for fifty-five. You pick. If you do that, and then you put a scope, sort of in. I th I always picture it as like putting it inside. Put the scope inside the number. Like what scope will fit in that number? Mm -hmm. Yep. And you 
you know, not not like the maximum that you would do for that amount of money, just like a, a, a scope that you'd be like, you know, if I get, I get paid $10,000 to like write a report on a, on a Saturday afternoon, sweet. You know, like some scope that would be very, very comfortable for you. You'd be like fist pumpingly happy to do that option for that price. You're, even if there's scope creep, you're going to be like, oh, I had to do, I had to do four hours of work for $10,000, you know? Oh, darn. Right. If you, and if you're focused, the client, if you and the client are both focused on the transformation that they want and what your contribution to it is, you can always be profitable, even at, at you know, lower dollar amounts than you're used to charging for, say, a, a project. Like most developers that are doing projects, it's like $30,000, a $100,000 to start. And if someone comes to them and they only have a budget of $10,000, they're immediately like, oh, get out of here. We, we don't mm-hmm. do anything for less than fifty. But you could do a lot of things for less than fifty. not coding, not the thing you're used to selling. But if you've got a smart team of coders or you're a smart coder, there's a lot of knowledge in your head that would be valuable to the client that doesn't involve you typing semicolons. So, uh, well, yeah, I think it's there's a beauty. A, there's, a, there's a piece about this that is underlying here. And you said, um, you know, pick a scope where you would be happy to deliver that. We, we cannot underestimate the psychological value of that because there's a difference from working with a client where it feels like you're working for them like it's oh i've got to get these tasks done today and i have you know i'm going to bill them for this number of hours and the client's going to look at the number of hours on the proposal it feels like i don't want to say slavery because you're getting paid for it but it feel it doesn't feel like an even exchange no, it's like what you're describing, yeah, exactly. What you're describing is how I think of consulting, right. which is we agree on a goal and you leave me alone and let me get you there. And when I say leave leave me alone, you know, depending on the kind of consulting you do, you're probably interacting with the clients, you're getting data or you're meeting with them, but you're essentially, you're a consultant. You're not an employee. They're not directing you. Mm-hmm. You are leading them to the promised land. Right. And they get out of your business. Like it, like you said, they, you are interacting with them uh, probably a lot, but they're not micromanaging you. They're not telling you how to do your job. They, there's a mutual... They're not even managing you. No. I mean, they might think they are, but they're really not. Right. Yeah. That's a big shift for a lot of people. A lot of people have this, uh, you know, they um, acquire a skill at a job and then they get dissatisfied with the job and they go out on their own and they approach everything with an employee mentality of like like where the proposal looks more like a resume than, you know, like a, a description of an agreement or, a, you know, a, a transformation. It's not, mm. it, it, and they, you know, and they act like, they just act like an employee. What do you need me to do? You know, where do you want the holes dug? Okay. I dug the holes. It took me this long. Pay me. It's, it's uh, like, yeah, it's God, that hurts my heart for people in that, in that space because mm-hmm. it's worse than being an employee. At least with an employee, you've got a salary, you've got benefits, you know, you have a, you have a boss. Yeah. But you probably have a team of people, you know, you've got, yeah, to, to live like that and work like that would just be depressing. Yeah. It's terrible. It is depressing. I talk to people about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a big mind shift to flip that around, but, um, you know, I, I think it shows up in the proposal. Like that's that's the that's where it starts. That's where it saying. starts, right? It's like yeah. that conversation, that the sales interview and the why conversation, and finding out what a home run would be for the for the business requires you to think like the business owner and not like uh, a technician, not like a coder, not like a photographer or a video produ- production person. You need to think like 
a doctor. How am I going to make this patient better? What can I do to contribute to their improved health? And if they're going to give you $10,000, that's, you could think of it like, I think of it like damage to their, the, the body of the business. You know, they're out $10,000. So they, you need to deliver something back that they are going to value more than that, or they're going to have buyer's remorse. They're going to feel worse off and they are worse off. So that's why the sales interview is, it's the, it's the, it's like where everything comes together. It's like where the rubber meets the road with value pricing for sure. And in, and kind of consulting in general, it's like you have to adopt the posture of the expert. You're not going to be told what to do when you know it's the wrong thing. The same way a doctor wouldn't let you tell them to give them a triple bypass if all you need was an antacid. It's like they're not going to do it. Yeah. But we don't have a professional body that can take our license away, which I wish we did, but yeah. we don't. So, you know, you need to you need to kind of adopt that first do, do no harm. Um, I don't know what the motto yourself. So that, and, and it comes from that diagnostic, that first meeting with the client where you figure out where, where does it hurt? How long has it been like this? And what do you want to, you know, what would normal look like? Or what is the new, you know, what do you want these new knees to do for you? You know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes with independent consulting, and I, I know that uh, one of the, um, uh, it's a personality assessment that I'm certified in. They talk about it the same way. It's like, what's your sphere of influence? So, um, if you're working with an organization, you know, how many people and what budgets can you harm? So that's how I look at it. So if you've got somebody who really has no experience in leadership training mm -hmm. and somehow they get into an organization and they start maybe one-to-one -one coaching a dozen people in a big organization, how many people does that influence? Well, if each of those 12 people have 100 direct reports, that's 1,200 people. That's too much influence for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, right? <laughs> it's, you really have to think about this. It, it is an awesome power that we have as consultants. It's not a direct, we don't have direct power, it's indirect, but we can help influence all kinds of sizes of organizations and individual people's lives. And I always feel like it's a sacred duty. We know we're not licensed, but we have to act as though we are. Right. Yeah, I tell, a, I tell a story sacred about... Sacred duty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just, I really believe that. I do too. The, the way I tell that story, uh, that, that the way I get that same message across is, is a couple of things. One is I always say, you know, I don't work with people I don't like. I don't work with people who I wouldn't want to go out to dinner with because I'll probably end up going out to dinner with them. Um, and mm -hmm. in this, before you know them, you know, when you're first meeting them and you're having this first conversation, I treat them like my mom. You know, it's like if my mom came to me and said, this, has ha this is a story that really happened. She was like, oh, I've got a, you know, she's a sixth grade teacher. At, at the time, she was a sixth grade teacher and was like, I've got an idea for an app. This is when the app store was blowing up and even my mom knew what it was. It's like, it was like, oh, I've got this idea for app for scheduling. The, the scheduling thing is like crazy when, the, you know, in middle school, it's like, blah, blah, blah. And it was really complicated. It was a really complicated thing. And it was a weird way to, it was, it just sounded like a bad idea. And I was like, I don't, there, there's probably a better solution to this problem. Like maybe a, a complicated spreadsheet or something. I don't think you need a, an iPhone app. And, and so I, I essentially spent 30 minutes talking her out of it. And being like, well, this would be a huge amount of money. I mean, for a minimum, this would be $30,000. Where are you going to get that? You know, what would be the point? How do you know that it would work? How do you know anybody would adopt it? It's And it when I was doing it, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I do in a sales meeting. I'm like talking the client out of doing the, like hiring me or even doing the project at all. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll even be like, do you even want this job? 
I'm like, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm going to like satisfy you. I don't want to take the job if I'm not confident that I can satisfy you or hit it out of the park. And so it's the same kind of thing. I just, if you treat everything like it's going to be a long-term multi-year relationship, it's, it's going to probably affect your behavior. So you're not thinking short-term and like, oh, how do I get a deposit so I can like, you know, pay my mortgage. It's more like, it's more like, what can I do to make these, you know, leave these people better off than when I met them. And if you do that, they're going to keep coming back or they're going to keep recommending you or they're going to keep uh, introducing you to more people and getting you more gigs. So just treat the person across the table like it's your mom or whatever and ask, you know, make them convince you that their idea is a good one. And if they can't, then it's like, well, let's just talk about the problem and see if there's maybe another way to solve this. Yeah. Yeah. It's your consulting from the moment you interact with them. Mm hmm. Right. And the, the power when you ultimately say no, and it may not happen all that often, but when you say no, people remember that. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful when you say no. And sometimes they'll keep coming back at you going, well, what about this one? Would you like to do this? Would you like to do this project? I'd really like to work with you. Because at that point, they know you have their best interests at heart. That's the key. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, cool. Any stones left unturned? We could probably we could probably do well, a whole series do. of yeah. Of like what happens next? <laughs> what after you send that proposal? What if it goes to you? How, how many times should you follow up? How long should you wait? What should you do if they come back in six months? And like all of that stuff. But but I think this is it's funny because we talked about this as being a tactical episode, but we hit a lot of strategy. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, with this, which and both are important. I just look at the proposal is is one of the most important things that you'll ever do in that relationship because you're you're solidifying what you've talked about at the beginning. It it's a touchstone if you find yourself going back to the proposal going, now how did we say the transformation? What was this going to look like? It, and it's it's a touchstone to remind you, especially on bigger projects of all the things that you're doing. And I don't mean that in terms of a laundry list. I mean in terms of the big things. It's a touchstone. It's critical. It's strategic, but it's also tactical because by getting the right things in the proposal and the right voice and tone and and options it's going to set it's going to set the um the trajectory of your relationship with that client 100 mm, percent, yeah yeah and if you do <laughs> if you do I, people are always like oh maybe i should just under you know just underbid this one just to get my foot in the door and get the project i'm like no you are training them to treat you poorly if they yeah. do stick around, you're going to have created a bad relationship from the beginning. Anyway. Yeah, you created a monster. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we could go into negotiating all that stuff too. But we'll leave it at that for this week. If people are curious, you can go to uh, jonathanstark.com slash five, the number five, and download my uh, proposal template. It's called five because it's only five pages long. And uh, it's it worked for me for 15 years. It works for hundreds of students that go through my coaching and, and uh, seminars. It's just a simple little thing that it just has a couple of really clever turns of phrase that if, if you're looking for a template and you've never had one that you were comfortable with and you feel like you're winging it all the time, then uh, yeah, you can just jump over to my website and grab one of those. Cool. We can put that link in the show notes. Good idea. Awesome. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.